All right, if you would take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Matthew chapter 4. Hope you've been doing your Who's Your One prayer journal over the past two weeks. You should be about at uh, uh, day 12 or 13 or so. We passed these out two Sundays ago and hope you've been doing that. I've been doing mine and marking mine off and, and uh, let's see, I think I got up to day 13 so I got to be sure and do day 14 but I want to encourage you to do that. Be praying how uh, God would use you in reaching someone for Christ and who, who that one is and uh, maybe one person, maybe one family but deciding who is my one and asking God that I'm sure he will answer that prayer if we uh, answer it in or ask it in faith and ask faithfully. Play a little, kind of work with your mind here a little bit for a few moments. Um, play a little, not really a game per se, but just kind of, I want to throw some words out there. And I want you to just uh, think to yourself, all right, what's the first thing that comes to mind whenever I say whatever I'm going to say? All right, I'm just going to say a word or a group of words. And you tell me what, what you don't have to tell me out loud verbally. Just, just think about, okay, what's the first thing that pops into your mind? For instance, if I just said uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Football, brother. Yeah, that's right. Football, all right. Uh, or, and I'm going to do several here, so just kind of kind of work with me here. If I say, uh, let's see, if I say uh, Star Wars. I mean, I, yeah, I heard something. Right away, I go to whom, 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 Jedi, you know, that kind of stuff, all right. Jedi. How about, uh, this would be great for the kids, maybe for the big kids too. Toy Story. Woody, Woody and Buzz. Yeah, okay, all right. Uh, let's see. When I say like uh, a little bit more serious here, Tom Hanks. Speaking of Toy Story, Tom Hanks, Forrest Gump. <laughs> Thank you, Miss Barbara. That did not even cross my mind. <laughs> I guess it should have, since I'm from Alabama. You know, it should have crossed my mind. Um, NASCAR, racing. Did I hear Hick out there? Did I hear somebody say Hick? <laughs> Bunch of Hicks in NASCAR. Yeah, we are. I, I, I like it. Um, lunch. Pizza. <laughs> Pizza. How about, here you go, here you go, ready? Einstein. Yeah. See, when I think Einstein, you say Einstein to me, the first thing I think of is hair. <laughs> you know, that's all I can think of. I didn't, that never even crossed my mind. I say all that just kind of primed the pump a little bit here, but here's another term, and I want you to, you don't need to verbalize it per se, but what do you think of when I say the word Christian? What do you think of when I say the word Christian? If you ask people on the street about that, about a Christian, you're probably going to get a lot of mixed answers, you know? If you got, went out on the street and asked them, well, are you a Christian? Some would say, well... Yeah, and some would say, well, I was born in America, and others would say, uh, well, no, but, or maybe they'll say, yeah, but, you're going to get a lot of different uh, responses as to what they think about that, and uh, for those who claim to be a Christian, uh, if you ask them why you think you're a Christian, you're going to get a lot of mixed bag of responses on that too, aren't you? There's going to be, well, because I was born in America, or I was baptized, or I joined a church, and my grandmother taught Sunday school for 43 years, or, or just a myriad of things, or it could be because they received Christ as their Savior. You're going to get a whole lot of, of different answers, and, and that's a shame because, you know, a lot of people, well, I pray to prayer, 
or I walked an aisle. Okay, a lot of people walk aisles. That doesn't mean they're saved. Or I had a mountaintop experience, or I had, you know, one of those camp-like experiences. And I'm not against camp. I love camp, and I know you can have those mountaintop experiences, but if that's what you're basing your salvation on, we got problems, right? And, but that's the way a lot of people uh, would, would look at it. Um, this particular message, I'll go ahead and tell you this up front, this particular message, actually, I got from the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, J.D. Greer. The, the primary outline is actually his, so I, wanna, I don't want to plagiarize. I want to go ahead and give him credit where credit is due. But nonetheless, he made this comment. He said he had uh, someone tell him this about Christians. Uh, according to J.D. Greer, he said, this particular gentleman said, Christians are judgmental, homophobic moralists who think that they're the only ones going to heaven and secretly relish the fact that everybody is going to hell. And as we saw in our faith builders time, we heard in our video there that most Americans have a negative view of Christianity. They don't have a very good view of us. So to think that everybody just wants Jesus, now we know everybody needs Jesus, amen, but not everybody wants Jesus and they're not knocking down the doors to try to get in to get Jesus. They have a very negative uh, view of us. And because of that, obviously, churches are half empty, church attendance has gone down, and so on. We've gone through all, all those kinds of things before. But I think that there's something here that really is important that we as believers are missing. I think a lot of us are missing the fact of this. We call ourselves Christians, but really is that the thing we should be going for? Is the word Christian, the term Christian, is that what we should be shooting for? The title of my message today is, Do As I Say, do as I do. That's my own title. That's not J.D. Greer's title. Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 to 22, we're going to look at today. Very familiar passage to most of us. Let's all stand one more time as we, out of respect to God's Word as I read this passage this morning. I hope you have your Bibles. It's important to have it so you can mark in it and take notes and highlight and circle and draw arrows and underline and, and so you can study and learn the Word of God. Matthew chapter 4, verse 18 Matthew writes, and Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers. How many? Two. Saw two brothers. Simon, called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. That makes sense. Then he said to them, this is Jesus speaking now, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. God bless your word this day. God made it penetrate our hearts. Lord, may it just truly mean something to us. Just not a, a bunch of words on a page, but Lord, it would be alive and it would be uh, uh, convicting. And Lord, that it would be transformational in our own lives. Bless your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. The first Christians were not called Christians. In fact, in that day, Christian was a very uh, uh, bad term. It was an awful term. It was uh, demeaning, okay? And the people who didn't know Christ are the ones who came up with it to basically badmouth those who did know Christ, especially those who were outside of the Jewish faith. They would call them Christians as a label of, that's them, get them. So it was a very uh, demeaning, derogatory term. It was not a, 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 a nice term at all. The word Christian means like little Christ, which makes sense. Christ 
C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N, Christian, like Christ, okay? So little Christ. And, but if you look through Scripture, you're not going to find the word Christian in there very much. In fact, in the New Testament, you won't find it in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, you only find it three times. Acts eleven twenty six, 26, uh, Acts chapter 26, and also in uh, the book of Galatians, I believe it is. But when you see it only three times, I'm sorry, 1 Peter 4.16, not Galatians. Galatians is later, David. Whereas the Bible uses another term 281 times. And that term is not Christian, but rather the term disciple. Disciple. You see, there's a difference. There's a difference between being a Christian and being a disciple. Because the, the word disciple, the Greek word is methetes, and it means a learner or a follower. And we've talked about that that before. It means to learn after or to follow after someone. And uh, got any history buffs in here? Anybody at all? Anybody like history? You're just, man, I love history. I like history. Okay, I don't know a whole lot about it, but when I, through my years of ministry, my 30 plus years of ministry, I've, there have been times when I've had to teach a little bit of history, so I just had to study up on it and everything. In the Jewish culture of that time, a Jewish boy would go to what we would refer to as Torah school at age five, okay? And they would stay in Torah school, so to speak, from age five till age ten. And the opening ceremony to get that five-year-old, and by the way, Jesus would have done this, the opening ceremony to initiate the beginning of Torah school, they would take the boys and they would put a drop of honey on their tongue. And a lot of these boys uh, would come from impoverished neighborhoods, just very poor, very, uh, just, just poverty everywhere. So they didn't know the, the real sweet uh, taste of honey. And if you've never tasted honey before, the first time you taste it, what do you taste? Oh my, it's good stuff, isn't it? And they would put a drop of that on their tongue. And the point of it was this. During your time of Torah school, the first five years, you're going to study the Torah. Now, what's the Torah? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. First five books of the Old Testament. That's the Torah. For the first five years, you're going to study the Torah, and it's going to be so sweet to your taste. That was the whole point of the, the symbolism of the honey on the tongue. So they would spend five years. But then they would get to uh, uh, age 10, and they would, in a sense, have a cut. All right? They would kind of cut it down. There's some kids who would say, you know what, this religious stuff is fine, but it's not for me. I'm going to go work with my dad. They'd work in their business, whether, you know, dad was a carpenter, like Jesus' dad was, a carpenter, fisherman, as Peter and, and Andrew were, and James and John. Uh, they would go into uh, business, maybe it was financials, uh, maybe to be a, pub, or a, a publican like Matthew was, or whatever the case may be, but they would go into some other uh, uh, business. And usually that would cut them down about 20%. About one-fifth of them would do actually that. The rest of them would stay from age 10 to age 17. And would, now that they've got the Torah down, now they would study Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then going all the way to the book of Malachi, right? And they through age 17. But at age 17, there would come another cut, all right? And this would be, this cut would be made by the rabbis themselves, okay? They would say, you know what? You're going to be able to make the cut. You guys are not. You're not really serious about this. And they would go in and join their parents' business or whatever the case was. But at that point when they turned age 17, and if they decided they wanted to continue their education, what they would do is this. They would have to choose a rabbi. Now, anybody remember what the word rabbi is? Teacher. Remember, Jesus all the time was called rabbi. And then in parentheses it'll say, which is translated teacher. Okay? That's what it means. And this particular person would then get the label of Talmud, a disciple. All right, that's the Hebrew word for disciple, okay? And so this Talmud would follow the rabbi everywhere. 
he would learn everything about this rabbi, his mannerisms, how to answer questions, who to talk to, how to address people, how to do this, how to do that, how to do, and they, they, everything that the rabbi did, this Talmud, this disciple would do exactly the same thing that the rabbi would do. He would, it was almost like being a photocopy of the rabbi himself. In fact, the highest compliment, the highest compliment that a Talmud could receive was that the dust, and I put this quotes, the dust of the rabbi is all over you. In other words, you're walking so closely with the rabbi that as his feet hit the ground, that dust would get stirred up, and the dust that he stirred up, you're walking so close to him that it would be all over you. In other words, you're doing exactly what your rabbi is teaching you along the way. But there was a rare quality that some of the rabbis had, and that, that particular rare quality was called smika. Y'all say that, smika. Smika, isn't that a cool word? Smika. It's a Hebrew word, and it means actually authority. The Greek word in the New Testament is exousia, which means authority. But to say the word authority and then to say the word smika was something special. And there weren't a whole lot of these guys, these rabbis that had smika. There were a chosen few. In fact, uh, they say uh, that during New Testament times, there were really only about 10 or 12 who people considered particular rabbis to have, guess what? Smika. You know, this authority, there's just something about them. There were certain qualifications that if, uh, it, say, if, if they had done some miracles and there was proof that it was a miracle, okay, that rabbi has got some smika. Or they could uh, maybe uh, uh, help you to understand and have some type of uh, different understanding of Scripture that was a right understanding of Scripture, and people would go, wow, I can't believe I've never thought about that before. They would say that that rabbi has smika, right? And so in the midst of all this, he, he's learning and, and, and he's doing and he's, he's understanding God's word. And, and then whenever at some time, whenever the, rab, the rabbinical school was going on and on and on, at some point the rabbis would decide, you know what, this one over here has got smika. And so two rabbis who had smika would confer on them the property of smika. And then people would know, whoa, all right, he's one of those. This guy's got it right here. By the way, take a wild guess what rabbi that we know oh so well had smika. Guess who? Jesus. Where was he at age 12? He was in the temple, wasn't he? What was he doing? He was talking to the rabbis. What was he doing? He was asking them questions. He was answering their questions. And what was their response? <gasps> at age 12, he was giving them what? Smika. I, like, I just like that word. It's a pretty cool word. But nonetheless, this is what Jesus did. And the goal of every Talmud, the goal was to be like the rabbi. The goal of every disciple was to be like his teacher. Jesus knew the Torah back and forth. Of course, we know that he wrote it, actually, all of the scripture. But when he was in the temple there, Remember the, the times he would say, hey, he would talk to religiously. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look on a woman to lust, you've already committed adultery in your... In other words, he took what they understood and he took it to a whole new level. You've heard that it was said, do not kill or do not murder. But I tell you, if you hate your brother, you've already done what? Committed murder in your heart. Why did Jesus know that kind of stuff? Because he had smika, Right? He understood he was, there was something about him. 
And whenever he calls his disciples here, he wants them to experience that same thing. When he calls these men, what we have here is whenever they refer to him as rabbi, and Jesus referred to them as his 12 what? Disciples. He's teaching them along the same lines that he learned. Today, what I want to do is I want to share with you five fundamentals of being that disciple. Five fundamentals of being that disciple that are described here in this particular passage. Number one is this. Number one fundamental. Jesus doesn't choose the best. He chooses the willing. Jesus doesn't choose the best. He chooses the willing. Back to the Sea of Galilee here. Jesus says, follow me. Let me ask you a question. Who did Jesus choose? Who was he talking to? You can talk to me. It's okay. Who was he talking to? Fishermen. But it wasn't just fishermen. It was fishermen who were no longer part of the rabbinical process, isn't it? These are guys who probably went to Torah school when they were from 5 to 10, or maybe even to 17, and maybe they flunked out. Maybe they didn't like it anymore. But nonetheless, what were they doing at this point? They were fishing. They were fishermen. There's nothing wrong with that. Maybe they just decided to take a different course of, of, of career or what have you. But they didn't make the cut. And the point here is, did Jesus chose the scrubs? He didn't choose the A team, he chose the B team. He didn't have the first string out there, he had the second and third string. He didn't have the main team out there, he had the practice squad. He had the guys that, that couldn't cut it. And they didn't even try to go through any rabbinical school on Jesus' level to try to prove themselves. He just started with them from absolutely nothing. He didn't choose the best, he simply chose the willing. I mean, think about these guys. We're talking about four fishermen here, and there were other fishermen among them. He also chose an IRS agent. Yes? Matthew? How many of you just love the IRS? Amen? Yeah, I don't think so. We get audited every year at, at this church and school. It is such a joy. No, it's not. Especially our financial people. They love it. No, they don't. No, they don't. He chose a terrorist. The Apostle Paul. Think about that. He chose people that weren't necessarily the best, but they, he chose the willing. Jesus chose many of the many, many of the most untrained, obscure, sometimes rude, unpolished, to begin the biggest movement that changed the entire history of the planet. John MacArthur put it this way. He said, God skipped all the wise of the day. There were great scholars in Egypt. The great library was in Alexandria. The great philosophers were in Athens. The powerful were in Rome. He passed over Herodotus, the historian, and Socrates, the great thinker, and Julius Caesar, the great ruler. He chose men so ordinary, it was comical. No rabbis, no teachers, no religious experts. God chose the second and third string. God chose... Those who weren't necessarily the best. Why? Because he knew that the best would only get in the way. The best would try to do it their way and think they knew it rather than rely on God to get it done. You see? And just because of that, we should be encouraged. God can use us. Amen? God can use us. God wants to use you. He wants to use your family. And it's not about your abilities. It's about your willingness. It's about your availability. J.D. Greer said, Jesus taught that his power working in and through the weakest vessel was infinitely greater 
been the greatest power without him. The greatest power on the planet was a weak compared to the power of Jesus working through someone else. Are you available? God chose the weak ones. He didn't choose the best. Number two, fundamental number two, he chose us, not we him. He chose us, not we him. Look at the passage again. He says, follow me. There's the understood you there. Those of you who know English, they say, where's the subject? There is no subject. It's understood you. He's speaking to them. You and you, follow me. Peter and Andrew, follow me. James and John, follow me. And remember, the rabbis had made the cut after the children had gone through years and years of training. Jesus chose to go back even further than that. He, he chose them without any training, no training. John 15, 16, you did not chose me, but I cho- chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. He chose, think, y'all ever think about that? Stop thinking about that for a moment. God chose you. Why? We're pretty pitiful. I, don't, I mean, maybe you're wonderful people. I don't know. I'm pretty pitiful. All right, amen? Anybody, is there anybody? Am I in that boat alone or is there, are there other people with me? Okay, okay. There's about three or four of you that are actually honest. That means we're going to have about 50 or 60 at the altar after the service, amen? Because you're going to confess your lies, all right? We're, we're pitiful people, and God, yet he still chose us. And that's what he's doing to these guys. James, John, Andrew, Peter, I'm choosing you. Ephesians 1.4, he chose us in him when? When David was 12 years old and he went to Camp Joy? No, the Bible says in Ephesians 1.4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah 1.5, before uh, you were formed in the womb, I knew you. Paul wrote in Galatians 1.15, that you set me apart while in my mother's womb or before I was born. God chose you. God chose you. Church, listen. It's not that he chose you to be a Christian and you to be a Christian, you to be a Christian, you to be a disciple, and you to be a Christian, you to be a disciple, and you to be a Christian, you to be a Christian, you Christian, disciple, Christian, disciple. No, no. He chose all of us to be disciples. He chose you and me. Number three, third fundamental. He chose me to follow him. He chose me to follow him. I want to put the emphasis on him there. He says, follow me. Isn't that what a a, a Talmud would do with his rabbi? Isn't that what a disciple would do with his teacher? He would follow who? Talk to me, church. Who would the disciple follow? His teacher. I mean, almost like in stride. Dads, have you ever had your kids do that with you? You know, maybe you're on the beach or something, and, you're, you're in the, and your kids are behind you, you know, when they're real young, maybe not when they're old, but when they're real young, they're trying to step in dad's footsteps. That's what he's talking about here. Follow me. In other words, be with Jesus. Be with the rabbi, disciples. Stick close to the rabbi. Be on the same page, same plan, same urgency, same prayer life, same time in the word, same time in the temple. Go wherever he goes. Do whatever he does. Same prayer life. Say whatever he says and how he says it. Report, respond in certain ways. Do the things that he would do. Follow him. Stay close to Jesus. I'll throw this kind of theoretical situation out here for you. Think about this. If Jesus were a member of Central Baptist Church, what do you think he would do? Let me ask you a question. If Jesus were a member of Central Baptist Church, let me ask you a question. You ready? You ready? You're not going to like this. So if you say ready, yes, buckle your seatbelts, put on your hard hat, and cover your toes. Ready? He'd never miss a service.
if Jesus were a member of this church, he'd be serving in every, I believe, in every ministry he possibly could. Brother James, if Jesus were a member of this church, I bet he'd be back to help you on those portables. How do I know that? Because he was a carpenter's son. He knew the stuff. You think you know. I think you know a lot, man. Man, get Jesus back here. I wonder if he would actually work it or he'd just go, <laughs> we'd like that one better. But nonetheless, you know. Jeremy, I bet if you needed ushers, I bet Jesus would usher. Dyer, so I bet if, if we needed nursery workers, which we do, I bet Jesus would, be, would step up to you and say, I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll do it. I bet if we needed a Sunday school teacher, I bet if we needed a faith builder teacher, Jesus would do it. Or if we didn't, I bet I guarantee you'd be in faith builders every time. Why? Because that's what the rabbi does. And as disciples, what should we do? Are you connecting? You see. That's what the rabbi does. Disciples. Musically. I don't know if Jesus could sing or not, but if he could, Bobby, I bet he'd be volunteering to be on the praise team or to play an instrument. Of course, being Jesus, I'm imagining he could probably do all those things, sing and play and, and do all that, you know. I bet if Jesus were a member of this church, he'd be at every blitzing opportunity. What do y'all think? I think Jesus would be blitzing every day. He'd be out there in the highways and the byways compelling them to come in. I bet he'd be ushering and welcoming and working with children or youth or I wonder how Jesus would approach the who's your one initiative this is where the rabbi is it's where he was working it's what he was doing y'all remember some of you remember the old um, bible study experiencing God by Henry Blackaby and a lot of people think about well we need to have God join us in what we're doing Henry Blackaby told, took it a whole different direction. He said, no, we need to figure out where God is working and join him in that work rather than trying to get him in, over here into what we're trying to do. Our, and I like that. Because I want to be where God is. How about y'all? Oh, yeah, me too. That's where I want to be. Fundamental number four. Disciples are willing to leave it all. Mm. Wow. Disciples are willing to leave it all. Look what Jesus says here. Follow me, verse 15, or 19, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. That's Andrew and Peter. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. And th these guys were in the boat with their dad. You see that? Verse number 21. They were in the boat with their dad doing their work. And he called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus calls attention to the two most important things that these guys hold dear and that every single one of us holds dear. Family, money. I mean, when you think about it, isn't that the two most important things to all of us in here? Yeah, our families and our money. When I say money, I'm talking about job and uh, security and all those kinds of things. Jesus calls them to leave their family and to leave the job up to him. Jesus calls him to be radical in their faith. They leave your boats behind, your nets behind. In other words, leave your career behind, leave your job behind. Uh, uh, what do we do to take care of ourselves? Well, they had that figure out. They had the Lord Jesus to do that. 
You may ask, well, you know, what do we depend on financially? Jesus is saying, you know what, I'm going to meet your needs. By the way, if I'm not mistaken, as I read through the four Gospels, I don't ever find uh, uh, the disciples really uh, going or walking around starving without food, without water, and, and things like that. In fact, if anything, we saw Jesus saying there were times where I was hungry and you fed me. There were times where I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. There were times where I didn't have anywhere to stay, and you gave me a place to stay, you know? And we all know that the life of being a disciple involves sacrifice, but nonetheless, they're willing to leave it all. He wants us to totally depend on him to provide. He wants our relationships with him to be the most important thing. Let me ask you something here. You know, we, we, we take this and we go, oh, you mean God's going to... Uh, King, could you back that up a little bit? We're, we're, you, got, you got ahead of me, brother, there, brother. There you go. All right, leave it there for a moment. When Jesus spoke to these guys, was he telling them, you will never, ever, ever see your parents again? Was he saying that? No. Well, let me ask this question then. Did they ever see their parents again? Just a few chapters down the road, we see Jesus in Peter's house healing his mother-in-law. Yeah, they saw their families again. Let me ask you this. Did they ever fish again? Sure they did. Often. I mean, there are several instances where they're out on the lake. They're out in the Sea of Galilee, right? So it's not that whenever God calls us to uh, leave everything, that you're going to have to leave everything, and we're going we're to send you to Africa, brother, and, and you just got to leave everything, and you're going to, you know what? I have all the confidence in the world. In six months, brother, God's going to bring you back from Africa to be with your family, and they're going to highly anticipate that, and it's going to be a wonderful time, you know? But nonetheless, that's one of the things I appreciate about what you're doing, my brother. God's sending you on. You say, you know what? This is what God said to do, and I realize I'm going to, but you know what? what? Jesus sacrificed way too much for me. This is the least I can do. I'll be back. And because of that, people would be added to the kingdom of heaven. Woo! Amen? (laughs) That's what it's all about. But he's saying being willing to go. Most of us are not going to have to leave our father and our mother. We're not going to have to lose our jobs if we follow Jesus wholeheartedly. But you know what? You could. You may decide to start living for Christ in your job, and all of a sudden, your coworkers, there's friction that's building up there. And you begin to figure out real fast, you know what, I either need to be looking for another job or I need to transfer to another department or something. It could cost you. Amen? When I think about, uh, and this, this happens more than we know, and I think you know this, but I told you last week or week before, the greatest conversion rate that's taking place right now from Islam to Christianity is in of all places in the country of Iran man that is so, and that's where they're jailing them that's where they're, they're, there's the uh, the persecution there is so intense but that's where most people are are coming to Christ and some of these, especially young people, when they come to Christ, their families or maybe spouses, especially wives, when they come to Christ, and then their family tells them, you either renounce Christ or we renounce you as a family. And that happens. That happens right here in America. Why? They're willing to leave it all. They understand how important this is. Some even lose their lives. There have been unconfirmed reports of neighborhoods uh, that 
are, are run by Islamic leaders whose kids or wives had done that exact thing, and they have lost their lives. And somehow it's covered up. I, 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 I have no proof. I'm just telling you what, and we know sometimes you really can't trust the news media, but folks, a dead person is a dead person. You know? And they very well could have lost their life for Christ. God's not asking us to do that, but he could. It could happen. You see, this is why most believers, help me church, this is why most believers are simply believers and not disciples. We're not willing to count the cost. I started to call this message, too many Christians, not enough disciples. In our lives, our family, in our job, and our money, and our schedules dictate, our ske- dictate the rest of our schedule. Our pleasures dictate our schedule. The things that we want to do run our lives. Not the church, not God's power, not Jesus. What we want to do. We're so filled with us and what we want that there's only room for God on Sunday morning. And the rest of the week it's, well, God, if I have time to fit you in, I will. And y'all know as well as I do in today's society, the rest of the week's pretty full. I love the illustration that when we saw our videos here in Faith Builders this morning, the guy used the illustration of the Legos. He had the green Lego board there. And you can only put so many Legos on that rectangular piece of Lego board, that thin piece of board. You can only put so so many on there until all of the green of the Lego board is totally filled up. You can't put any more on it. That's the way some of our lives are. They're so filled with us that we have no time, unless it's Sunday morning, we have no time for him. College students, you have to make a decision. Who's going to have more sway over you? Who will you listen to? Those lost college students? That atheist or agnostic professor? You might be ostracized. You might be labeled. You might even fail a project or a test or even a class. Is it worth it to you? Who will you follow? High school students, middle school students, y'all look at me. You may be the only ones, you may be the only one in your entire class who will stand for God. Are you willing to take that step? Are you willing to take a step from being a Christian to being a disciple? And take that stand? Who will you love more? Those of us that have a job. To have the temptation to cut corners, go with the flow, just do what everybody else does? Or are you going to be patient and do it God's way? Set up a good testimony for yourself in the workplace when it comes to our money. Some of us are all about keep it all to ourselves and my pleasures because we got to go out to eat and we got to go to Bush Gardens and we got to go to this activity and that activity. And you know what? If I have a little left, I'll throw a little in the plate on the way back. If, let me tell you something. A disciple is going to put in his 10%. That's what a rabbi would do. He would put in what he should give back to God. Are you willing to leave it all and follow him? Lastly and finally, number five, disciples reproduce spiritual fruit. Disciples reproduce spiritual fruit. He says, I will make you fishers of men. There's no such thing as a non-producing disciple. 
Let me say that again. There is no such thing as a non-producing disciple. Disciples produce what? More disciples. John 15, 8. Jesus gave a challenge. Listen to this. John 15, 8. But this, my Father, by this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. In other words, Jesus says here, prove to me that you're my disciples by bearing fruit. What's the fruit of a disciple? Another. It's okay, you can say it. What's, another, what's the fruit of a disciple? Another disciple. Another disciple. Disciples reproduce spiritual fruit. Disciple making will be a part of our lives. Jesus said, I will make you fishers of men. I want to show you one last verse. You don't need to turn to it. It's going to come up on the screen. Matthew 28, 19. We all know this verse. You've heard it before. But I learned something about this verse that I didn't know before this past week. Some of the things that I, I, I've told you about this verse before, for instance, when you uh, see the verse here, go therefore and make disciples, you'll notice I have that in all caps. I'll bring, come back to that in a moment. Of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things, and uh, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen, right? I've been teaching you all along, and this is true. When you look at the word go, what the word go is, and I'm trying to give you a little bit of Greek grammar here, okay, so please forgive me. Go is actually translated having been gone. It's what's called an aorist participle, something that happened way back there, but it's continuing on right now. Okay, does that make sense? All right. In other words, when you got saved, start going and reaching the masses, right? Then you get to baptizing. That's what's called a present participle. And uh, also teaching is a present participle. What that means is right now at this very moment, you're ongoing and doing these things. You're baptizing and teaching, right? But there was something I've been missing all along that I just learned this past week is the word make. The word make is not a, a participle. The word make is a, an imperative verb. What does that mean, Pastor Wes? Here's what it means. What it means is the crux of this verse, the very heart of this verse, is not having gone, is not teaching, is not baptizing. You know what the heart of this verse is with make being a verb? What is the heart of this verse? Make disciples. Everything else, the going, the teaching, the baptizing, the observing, all those things branch out. But the heart of the verse itself, the foundation of it, is make disciples. And that's what a rabbi did. That's what Rabbi Jesus did. He produced a lot of Talmudim, many Talmuds, many disciples. Following Jesus means you subject everything in your life to his lordship. It means you forsake all that he has forbidden and embrace and pursue all that he has prescribed. It means that we understand that if we are going to be disciples, we realize that, you know what, he chooses the willing, not necessarily the best. He chose us. We didn't choose him. We choose to follow him, and we're willing to leave it all and follow him. And it means we'll produce spiritual fruit, because that's what disciples do. A disciple, a Talmud, has all, always followed his teacher, the rabbi, and did exactly as he said and as he did. Jesus is our rabbi. 
Are you his Talmud? Do as I say, do as I do. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, may we see the importance of being not just a Christian. Lord, I'm thankful that we're Christians, but Lord, it should go far beyond that. We've been called to be your disciples. And God, my hope and prayer, Father, is that we would embrace the challenge of your word to make disciples, that we would seek to find out who is our one, that one who needs Jesus, that one who will spend eternity in hell without Christ, that one, Lord, who's lost and they don't even realize it, and, and we, from a human perspective, God, we are their only hope. We're the one in their lives that, that can give them the precious, loving, saving message of the gospel. God, may we be that disciple that you've called us to be, Lord. And part of being a disciple is reproducing other disciples. God, challenge us. God, convict us in areas that we need to be convicted. You've called us to a task, Father. May we be faithful in that task, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together. You know, sometimes we just need to come to the altar and repent. Sometimes you need to come to the altar and pray for something or someone. Sometimes we just need to come to the altar and adore. But I hope that you'll come. If the Holy Spirit of God is speaking to you about something, this is your time. Come and just lay it down before the Lord. God loves you, and he wants to use you. Be that disciple that God has called us to be. Sing with us.